good morning. Welcome to Maricopa Springs. We're glad that you're here. My name is Jim. I think most of you probably know that at this, uh, at this juncture. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to turn my Bible in. All right. Um, I got to say first that it, it's a privilege that I get to come up here and share God's Word with you. Um, the opportunity, and I, I, I want to tell you that it's a blessing, and I thank you guys for that blessing that you've, you've given me this opportunity. And I, I'm also going to say this, which is probably going to be a little weird. I hope that you can tune me out this morning. I really do. <laughs> I hope that you can tune me out because we have Grady who's normally up here and just a few weeks ago he was here and then last week we had, we had Trevor and now you have me. So you have a couple of different styles and different voices and tempos and all these different things. Not to mention what's going on in our own lives. The weather or 347 or whatever it is. So all of these distractions. I hope that you can tune all of that out and focus in on what God's word has for you this morning. Because that is of the first importance. I think that's truly what we should be here for, just focusing on God's Word. So let me open us in prayer, and then we can get started. Father, thank you for this opportunity to morn- this morning to come before you in worship and in praise. We thank you for your Word. We ask this morning that all the distractions are removed from us, that our hearts are cleared away, our minds are cleared away from all the clutter, and that your Word can pierce our hearts and pierce our minds and pierce our souls so that we can just walk in a way in a manner that's worthy of you, Father, and that it glorifies you. But let this word today edify and grow us. We, we praise and thank you, Father. Uh, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn there with me now to First uh, Thessalonians. We're still in there. And it's chapter 4, it's verses 13 through 18, so if you're not that overachiever, you didn't already get there, you looked in the notes, go ahead and turn there now. Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a minute, that's probably not a good idea. Like I said, tune me out. (laughs) Um, So if you do not have a Bible this morning, for whatever reason, we'd like to give you one, so borrow, keep. So you can raise your hand, one of the guys will bring one around if you do not have that in front of you, electronic or paper. Um, so go ahead and do that. I want you to know that in this, in, this, in this section that we're in, in this passage that we're in, that it is extremely comforting. It is a passage that brings hope. It, it is a, a passage that if we are in Christ, if we believe, then we have a hope like none other. And we will see that in here. We are given by God a free gift of faith. And because of that faith, we have a hope. And in that hope, we live out our faith. It's an action and a reaction. And I think Trevor touched on that last week. But sometimes what happens when this passage is brought into a conversation or it's brought into a study or likely a, a debate, eschatology comes right to the forefront. That's what leads the way. Controversy comes in, some difficulty comes in, confusion enters in. Paul brings into this passage to the Thessalonians this big event, the return of Christ, the second coming. And what happens is, is what Paul is trying to teach, what Paul is getting to, the implications and the applications, his main point, his purpose, gets swallowed up in, in this. Now, I'm not saying that the second coming is not a huge event. It is the top one. Most of the time you hear top five. I'm telling you top one. Creation. The birth of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ. The second coming, they're all number one. You couldn't number them one through five. They're all number one. So the, je- the, the return of Jesus is important. But Paul's purpose here is not to give us a step-by-step account of Jesus' return. That's not his point. That's not his purpose. So what we have to do to kind of hammer all this out is to just start at the beginning. So Paul, in this passage, he shifts gears. Okay, He changes topics and he shares information that's not yet known to the Thessalonians. His purpose for bringing them this new knowledge and for the verse, uh, for verse 16, the second coming, is to bring them comfort, hope, and to help them walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. To share with them the full assurance and hope that they have in Christ. It is God's word. That's the thing that we need to understand here when we're looking at this. This is God's word, so it does the same for us. Hope, comfort, helps us walk in a manner worthy. 
Now, it would be difficult for me or any of us to say that I believe in eternal life when I am overcome by grief for another believer, would it not? So Paul's words to the Thessalonians and to us not, do not just comfort and bring us hope, but they change the way in which we grieve. It changes the way in which we do and see everything. It literally changes our worldview. We look through life to life with a different lens. And Paul's heart here is to offer a knowledge that will bring hope and comfort. God's heart for us is the same. And we know that because this is God's word. And today, that's, that's where I want to focus. I want to, I want to focus in on that, that best part. And as we get started, I want to kind of break out some things really quick before we get into this verse by verse. The first thing I want to kind of bring to the forefront is this idea of knowledge. Paul is sharing a knowledge and a, uh, a new knowledge with them. A new knowledge with them. One that is authoritative. But most importantly, its purpose is, again, to confront, uh, to comfort and to encourage and to change the way they are living. It is not just Paul's word, though. It's the Old Testament. It's what we have been shown and taught by Jesus and what has been revealed through his word from front cover to back cover. And then we see this hope as well. And the good news, he has risen. It's not just a mantra. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, right? And we heard that often, he has risen. How many times have you heard it since? Because God raised the Son, the first fruits, and so we will all be raised through Jesus, being brought into a new age through his power. Our hope is in him. Now we have peace and comfort to encourage. And knowing we will always be together, all of us, with him. None will be left out, all, uh, whether we are alive or asleep, or sorry, asleep or awake. Not only will we be with him, but we will see Jesus descend in all his majesty and all of his glory. What comfort and hope does that bring? And what comfort and hope? How encouraging. Does that not encourage you? There's going to be some truths that you see through this as well. I hope that you'll notice. Jesus died and rose again. This is a historical fact. It's not legends. It's not some spiritual inter- interpretation of some events that happened, but truth. He is coming back. He said he was coming back. He went to prepare a place. He is coming back. That is a truth. It cannot be removed. We are and will always be together with him. He has said that. We can't be changed. It's a truth. The last and one of the most important truths, the most important truth, love is of the utmost importance. And we will see that all the way through this passage. So let's start in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. So this is a transitional statement that he makes here in verse 13. We see it in... um, chapter 2, in chapter 4, chapter 5. He's talking in this, uh, just before this, and, and Trevor taught on this, brotherly love and how things work out on that, which was a good message. I loved it. And now he shifts. He shifts to the deceased believers and this second coming. And then he also, we see the verse introduces a problem, something that arises, that comes to Paul's attention. He notices, Okay. And now the problem that the Thessalonians are having is that they're grieving. And they are grieving for the ones that have fallen asleep, died. Now, he's not just using some kind of kind words there to kind of say dead instead, or or say this instead of that, but that's a common phrase that they would use then, fall asleep. Because they believe, so he sits there, because they have fallen asleep, because they believe that these people who have fallen asleep will be missing out on something. So this is why they're grieving. There's this interpretation here. They know of the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' return, but they're uninformed on how it specifically relates in regards to Jesus' return and those who are asleep. There was this blank spot, something that was not filled in. So they are grieving like the others that do not have a hope in Christ, the others around them. So Paul wants to comfort He wants to change or correct the behavior and action. Paul wants them to see the full assurance that they have in Christ. He wants to give them what is lacking, a knowledge 
that will bring them comfort and hope. Paul is not saying that they should not grieve. That's not what this verse says. He's not saying don't grieve. We know that because Jesus wept. Paul's own words in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So he's not saying don't grieve, but grieve with a hope that is in Christ. So that's the message that he's given them. Now, the others around them, they grieve in a totally different way, a, a, a way of, of just with utter hopelessness. As I was reading some commentary that I was fortunate enough to, to, to receive, um, two things came into that, was, was these grave inscriptions for this, from this time frame, the two most popular ones. And these are non-believers. I was not, and I was. I am not, and I care not. Just so bleak and dark. And then this one, this one really kind of blew me away. If you want to know who I am, the answer is ash. Not who I was or who I'm going to be, but my entire existence is just ash. It's a hopelessness. Those that don't know Christ, non-believers cannot see true hope because without God there is no hope. In Ephesians 2 it says that you were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Don't be like you were. Don't be like them. Be like you are. Be in Christ. Live like you are in Christ. And all they have, all of these non-believers, all they have are just things. They can't see a true hope. They can't see the true assurance that is only available through the free gift of God through His Son, Jesus. And through that knowledge, they will have comfort and hope. That's what's available. So how do we live? How do we go about our lives? Do we grow in knowledge? And not just the head knowledge and not just the heart knowledge. Do we grow them together? Do we work on them together? Because they must grow together. They must be in step for us to continually move forward together. And when they are in step and everything's moving so beautifully because we're in step with God, do we let that growth and that closeness with God comfort us, bring us hope, when the world says there is none, and you know they will, because they do. Do we walk, our, do we walk out our faith? When people, non-believers and believers alike, when they look at our lives, do they see this true believer who will miss these conversations that they had with a dear friend who has passed on, but know that they will soon be more, better ones, ones that will be in a fellowship with Christ? That they are always together in Christ. Whether they are asleep or whether they are awake. This age or the next. If my daughter Bailey left for work tomorrow or on Tuesday and didn't return, how would my wife and I grieve? Would I be in a deep sadness, this dark pit, wishing that, oh, how I wish I would have said something different, done something different? Or would I grieve with a hope that would be looking forward to the conversations to come. The knowledge to know that she's alive in Christ. Does that, does our knowledge of who God is, what God has done, and what he says he will do, change the way we live out our faith? And Paul comes to, uh, he points out this problem, highlights the problem in verse 13. Now he gives them the solution. The hope that they have, what that hope is, and what that hope is in specifically. And he does this in a, in, uh, first by giving this creedal statement, this, this confession. And we're going to see this in verse 14. And then he gives a declaration, a word from the Lord, which comes in verse 15. And then we see in verse 16 and 17, that word from the Lord. So let's look at verse 14 together. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul has given the good news, the resurrection, to the Thessalonians. They have that knowledge. They know of the resurrection. So they know that their brothers and sisters will be resurrected. And we know that for two reasons. And the first one is, is that, well, if you read enough of the New Testament, you know Paul. From the moment that he was converted at the road to Damascus, he has seen nothing else but Christ risen. 
And in 1 Corinthians 15, he shares this idea. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So how could Paul step into Thessalonica and not share the resurrection? That just wouldn't be possible. And then we see by the Thessalonians' own admission in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1 in Thessalonians, you didn't turn there, but let me share it with you. And how you turned to God from the idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul opens 14 with, for since we believe. Since we believe. He's not trying to make some implications that he will be alive or something coming down the pipe. What he means by we is that we believe this, all of us. You, me, the church. For since we believe, we already know Jesus died and rose again. This is a fundamental truth bringing great hope. So because they know this first truth, Paul can assert the second truth that happens in the second half of this verse. One truth that confirms another truth, which is through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So hope is present. Have hope. Jesus lives. And we live because he lives. And God, God is in control Our hope is not hollow, it is assured in our faith. A faith and a hope that is grounded in conviction. Paul starts filling in the blanks here for the Thessalonians. And I believe for us as well sometimes. Jesus lives and through Jesus God will bring uh, bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep. We know this this because it says so. He has made it known to us through his word. Not just this portion, but all of it, from front cover to back. Creation, the flood, the virgin birth, birth, the perfecter example of the perfect, the perfect example of love and righteousness lived, a sacrificial death, a glorious resurrection, our redemption through the perfecter of our faith, our intercessor. He has done it all. Do we really, to use a sports analogy, do we really think at some point that God's just going to change his mind, place the ball down on the one-inch line, and, and just walk away? Jesus is the first fruits. God is the first act. He is the initiator of all things. He is the conductor. And his symphony, his symphony, my brothers and sisters, is perfect. It is absolutely flawless, and it will be completed. God is the initiator, and Christ has been raised, and we along with him. Our witness is not in vain. Our faith is not hollow. He has risen. He has risen, a truth, not a falsehood. We have been freed from the bonds of sin, and whether asleep or awake, we are alive in Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. And I love this imagery of first fruits, and I want you to think about this just for a minute. And John, John 15 is one of my favorite chapters in, in all of the Bible. And it has this imagery. God is the vine dresser covering everything, controls everything. Just the earth covered in vineyards, which is the vine. Jesus is the vine. And we are all of this. Okay? We are that fruit that sits out there. But I want you to picture uh, a vineyard, anything that you've seen, or a fruit tree for that matter. Have you ever just seen one grape, one apple? Jesus is the first fruit. That first fruit is an indication more to come. Not that that's all that there is. God so loved us that he sent his son. For the son so loved the father that he went to the cross. And through that death, and most importantly, the resurrection, the most loving and sacrificial act in all of history, we will be with him. His love is not bound by any limitations. This is why the Thessalonians can live with a hope like none other because whether alive or dead, they, we are alive in Christ. Christ first and then us. So do we live with a hope that witnesses to the world that we are loved? 
Our God will be with us in every moment and know that we are his children. We are children of God. We will be together in his moment. Do, we, do our lives reflect that he has risen? When others see us, do they see that conviction and that hope that is just unshakable by that truth? We cannot be moved. We cannot be shaken because of where our faith lies. In Romans 8, it says that death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, no powers, no heights, no depths, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a hope. He has raised the Son. He has risen. It is not just a mantra. It is a way that we live out our lives and our faith. Now we come to verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The word of the Lord that Paul is defining is not what we just got done working through. Okay? He's not uh, saying something that's already stated. That's not the word of the Lord. We see this because it sits there and says, this we declare. So what I now present, what follows, what's coming next is going to be the word of the Lord. And now before Paul gets to the teaching, he summarizes it for them. He summarizes what's about to come. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's the trailer. It's the prequel to this big event. God's, or uh, Jesus' own word, his own teaching. It's like that guy getting up to warm up the crowd. He's the prequel. So Paul writes in some really strong language here as well. We can see that. He says, those who are alive will not precede. Will not precede. So they will not come before those who are alive. Now I'm going to summarize Paul here for a minute. All those who are asleep in Christ will be transformed, resurrected, before we all together go to meet him. So the problem that the Thessalonians are having, we start to kind of see. It's becoming more defined and clearer. They are not grieving because those who are asleep will not be resurrected. They are grieving because they think that those who are asleep that are not present will be missing something that those who are alive, that those who are still alive, get to be a part of. And this is the area that they're grieving. And again, remember that they're grieving in, in an inappropriate way, not a right way that is, is Christ-like or in a way worthy. Also something to notate here is that Paul is not citing anything, a specific scripture here, but Paul is summarizing the teaching of Jesus. So the, the general teaching of Jesus, pretty much the whole gamut, all right? For the Thessalonians' specific situation, the problem that they're having, he brings that in. So you can't go to Isaiah and put your finger down on it and see that. You, you, you won't find it there. But you will find it, I can tell you. You will find it if you go to books Genesis to Revelation. If you look through that, you will find it all there. Now, the commentaries and, and the, the experts, they've dug through all of that. And, and there are examples. There are areas where you can see some similarities and, and why we can see that this teaching is from Jesus. One of the areas is Matthew 24. You can see some similarities in the, in the way it's worked out. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the loud trumpet call. And he will gather his elect. So we see that there's going to be some similarities. So Paul is saying this. Paul is saying these are not my words, though. This is the port that we get to. He is saying these are not my words. These are authoritative words, authoritative teaching of the Lord, what Jesus taught. Not Paul, not me, Jim, not those believers over there, but the Lord himself. 
So why does Paul add the word of the Lord? It's just like in that creedal statement that came before, that confession. Jesus died and rose again. He does this because it adds the next level of authority. The word of the Lord, what Paul states in verse 15, and what follows implies the highest authority in all of creation. Not just what Paul says, not what the church says, but we have now moved up to the very top floor. Not the vice president, none of that stuff, but the very top guy. This word is coming from him. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am all authority. And this is what he's going to share. Not only that, but you see some of the things that he shares throughout his teaching. In John 14, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is authoritative. This is truth. And we can't move past that. The truth He is coming back, and we will be with him. Do we hold to God's word above all things, all authority? Do we let that comfort us? Do we rest in that hope? Do we live with an assurance in our convictions that only he, only his love, and that only his word can provide for us? Now, As we move forward, we get to that authoritative word. This is verses 16 and 17. The big event, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so, we will always be with the Lord. Hopefully I don't mess this word up. The parousia was commonly used. The parousia, the second coming, the return of Jesus. This is why the Thessalonians grieved as they did. And why Paul's addressing it. As I mentioned earlier, they believed that they would be raised, but their grief was over what those who had died would miss out on. And now we're there. The parousia, the return of Jesus, the second coming. To not be able to be a part of this event would be devastating for them. It would bring great grief as we see they're grieving. And what happens here, as we read this passage, we see it through our experiences and our history, our culture, our hang-ups. And we fail to see what they did. The Thessalonians lack some details of the, of the second coming, the parousia, as it applies to the ones that, who have passed on, the ones who are asleep. But Paul fills in that blank. He starts moving through that, and he's filling in that blank. And they grieved as they did because they saw this event as something that sometimes maybe we do not. Now, I've spent about 20 years in customer service. I was working in a, a lumberyard and then with Home Depot, and now I work for a national bank. So I've always been client and customer focused. And one of the things I learned very early on in my career was that I, I had to see things through their perspective, their customer's perspective, the client's perspective, and not my own. So when I would walk the store, the aisles of, of my store, I would look at a shelf, and I would look at it as if I were Joe the customer or something like that, his perspective his history, and try and perceive what he's trying to look at. And I think that's what we need to do here. We need to look at this passage through the eyes of a Thessalonian, not an American, with our difficulties, our history, our culture, our affliction. I mean, sometimes it just gets so rough, doesn't it? We're sitting on 347 and we just want to be gone. There's this old commercial. I don't know if anybody remembers it. I'm probably going to date. What is it? Calgon, take me away. But what they imagined is something totally different here. Their culture and their, their history. This, this idea is that there was something common in their culture. They would have visiting dignitaries that would come. So specifically, Thessalonica would be visited by these dignitaries. And it would be a great honor to be selected 
to be chosen to go out and meet them. To go out and meet them. I don't mean like a couple hundred yards. I mean like a mile or two. But it would be a great honor to go out and meet these dignitaries. These are just dignitaries, like a visiting congressman or something like that. And they would go out there, they would meet them, and they would walk them back in. They would follow them back in. This is like kind of a royal welcoming, so to speak. Okay? But that's what they saw this as. But now blow it up. They, they think it's such an honor and such a blessing when some dignitary comes. But this isn't just some dignitary. This is Jesus himself descending. And I want to try and give you a picture as best I can to describe the indescribable. I want you to picture in your mind right now the most amazing sunset you've, already see, you've, you've seen in your life. The most vivid, just vibrant colors. I want you to picture the most powerful, booming thunderstorm with lightning that you have ever seen and mix these two images together. And I want you to mix that, mix that with just this amazing thundering sound. Bob and I were sharing things a couple weeks ago and he was sharing with me this idea of top fuel drag cars. When those things come thundering past you, they rattle the inside of your bones. And the Formula One race cars, the same thing. I want you to put that all together. Jesus is descending. They are being chosen to be a part of that. And those people who are asleep, they feel won't be a part of that. And they are grieving that because this moment for them is one of the most amazing moments that could ever possibly be. That's that picture. And this completes this picture of the problem and why they were grieving as they were. They grieved those ones who were asleep because they're going to miss out on this amazing event. I mean, do we see it sometimes that way or do we just think that we're just going to be in front of Jesus one day and that's, that's just really it? Can we imagine the majesty of this event? We see as it starts, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. And these things that follow, it sits there and has three things that come up. With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet. It's almost like this is going to happen simultaneously and the Lord is going to descend. And he's not coming down like lightning fast or anything. Man, he is coming down in just all of his majesty and glory, taking his time. It's the Lord himself, not some assistant, not the second guy on the rung, but the Lord himself coming down for us. Think about their grief, the Thessalonians. Think about our afflictions and our struggles and our grief. They're all washed away in that joy, in that moment right there when we see the Lord himself as he descends. He is coming to complete the Father's work, the new heavens and the new earth. All of creation groans. The one that has all the authority, the guy on the top, will not be sending his assistant. His love for his own, for us, is just far too great for that. And I mentioned those three things that happen with the cry or shout of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet. Now, I think sometimes there can be some confusion. Like we have the shout of command and then we hear the voice of an archangel. Like these second, the second and third things kind of make up the first. Now, I'm not a grammatical guy. I don't understand that. For those of you that know me, I can hardly spell my own name. So I got this from commentary, Okay. Prepositional phrases begin with certain things. With is one of them. That word with. And we see this in here. We see with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. These are three separate actions. Three separate things. The command, that shout. In Joel, you hear, the Lord utters his voice before his army. And in Joshua, the wall of Jericho fell by the power of God. A shout and a trumpet blast. You remember if we go back to first, verse 14, the initiator. God is the one moving everything. John 15, he is the vine dresser. He is in control. It is God's shout that we hear. He is the initiator. And then when we get to this, the voice of an archangel, we hear the Lord's army, and it is of the highest rank. You remember the Braveheart movie? Mel Gibson character, 
They'll never take our freedom. He's going up and down the front of that army face. Who is in the front? His right and his left hands. His main lieutenants, his guys. And they're all like, yes. And they're ready to come. With the sound of the trumpet of God. This is not an instrument. Sorry, Josh. It's not just an instrument. But it's the presence. It's the presence of God. In Exodus, you hear, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Presence of God. He is present. It's an announcement. The Lord Jesus himself is descending. And it is a signal. In 1 Corinthians 15, it has this. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And then we get to that next part. The next thing that happens. So we have Jesus descending, and then the next thing that happens after that, this is really important because, again, remember what the Thessalonians think here, what they're grieving over. And he sits there and he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. And when we look back to verse 15, Paul states the order in which all of which we are going to be transformed into this eternal body, imperishable body. He makes it clear with this strong language, Those who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now we see it in Jesus' own teaching, his authoritative word, the Lord himself. The dead in Christ will rise first. And i got to be honest with you, this will happen seemingly instantaneously. And we only have one little timeline on here, and we see that again in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at that trumpet blast, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That brother or that sister that you lost that passed away, the one that you may be thinking about right now, I know there's one I'm thinking about right now, if we were to hear that trumpet blast and Jesus would be descending, that brother or sister would be standing right here in an imperishable body, and within moments, seemingly in the twinkling of an eye, we would be in our perishable body as well. And then Paul continues, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Remember what they thought. Visiting dignitaries. Jesus himself is coming down from from heaven. Their lost brother and sister that they were grieving a minute ago is standing right next to them. And right now, Paul is sitting there saying, you're going up. You have been selected. You are chosen. You're going up to go greet and meet the Lord Jesus himself. Man, I imagine in that moment, you're not grieving at all. You just, this overwhelming joy that would, again, be undescribable. Then it ends. It ends right there. To meet the Lord in the air. Paul doesn't get into any details of what and when, kind of what happens next. He provides no timeline here. He doesn't sit there and say May 5th, 2019 at 6.36 p.m. And he doesn't say where. I know it says air, but you can go outside and look around. That's some big air out there. And if you can point to the exact spot, I'd be pretty impressed. The Thessalonians, but what, forgive me, what he does do here, what he does, he addresses, he's still addressing the problems that the Thessalonians are having. And it comes right at the end of verse 17 with what he wants them to know. And it says, so we will always be with the Lord. We will be with him, all of us, together. What else do you need to know? Paul is describing these events not so the Thessalonians would know that they will be saved from any tribulation or that they would be present during any tribulation, but that their brothers and their sisters who have died that they've been grieving would be with them when Jesus returns. 
Paul shares this knowledge that brings hope and comfort that encourages. Now I'm going to take just a quick minute before I get into the application, and I'm going to say that understand this, Jesus is coming back to do something else as well. He is coming back for that final judgment. And if you don't know him, if you are not one of his own, he's coming back to judge you. That is part of it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I'm also not going to walk away from it. This verse, this passage does speak to that because it is the second coming of the Lord. And there is something that happens in there. We will be caught up to meet him and those others, those who are not in Christ, those who do not know him will be judged. Now, the Thessalonians, they were focused here on the ones that they had lost, the ones in Christ. Where we were we focused? Sorry, I'm struggling to say that word. Where are we focused? Is our concern about the tribulation? Are we concerned about our own suffering that we might have to go through or endure? The focus here is not what we are escaping, but what we will or who we will be with. So not what we are escaping or not what terrible things we're going to miss out on, thank you, but who we are going to be with. Are we looking up? Are we looking to the age to come? Or are we stacking up treasures here? Are we spending today to make sure we have our desires and our security and our comforts for this world tomorrow, Monday? Or do we live for him? Is he our desire? Is he our security? Is he our comfort? Do we look to him? Do we look to others before we look to ourselves? Do we live like we will always be together with him? We come to the very, very last verse. It's verse 18. It's his application. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This whole passage brings comfort, hope, and encouragement. But this last, I'm going to bring in part of 17. This last verse and a half just ends it so beautifully and so well. And just so simple, doesn't it? We will all struggle with a great many things. So like the Thessalonians, know this. We will always be with the Lord. Now, when he returns, always, forever, asleep, awake, this age or the next. This final verse concludes with that application. Encourage one another with these words. Do not argue. Do not debate. Do not be controversial. Unloving towards one another. Encourage one another. It's okay to debate as long as you do it nicely. I'll let you do that. That's fine. But do it lovingly, not unlovingly. Encourage one another. Build one another up. And do we do that? The Thessalonian believers, the Thessalonians were believers, but they struggled and they grieved. Because they were missing out on this information. How do you suppose they lived after Paul filled in that blank for them? I think sometimes my guess is a lot like us. Some days good and and some days not. But I'm sure that their eyes and their hearts from that moment, that time on, pointed upward. And And they focused on the hearts of others, living for the next age and not this one. A hope and a comfort in Jesus that cannot be shaken. My brothers and sisters, let's take every opportunity that comes along and build each other up. Encourage one another when when they need these words. When a brother and sister needs these words, encourage them, lift them up. And when I say these words, I know that Paul's specifically probably just referring to this, this particular passage or maybe just the whole letter. Front to back, these words, the authoritative word of God. Seeking knowledge of God in the Spirit of God always leads to a closer relationship with God. It leads us to comfort, hope, joy, agape, a love, a maturing Christian, agape. Trevor shared that with us last week, and it was a great message. I truly enjoyed it. But we seek that knowledge. John 10 and verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. My Bible 
in Romans 12 sits there, has this little part that says marks of a Christian. I would probably change that now. The heart of those who follow and know the Lord Jesus. (laughs) These are characteristics. Let me just share the very first. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Get to know him. Spending our time with him and in fellowship with other believers builds up and stores up treasures in heaven through our outpouring of love towards one another and others. God is glorified because it is only through him that even any of that is possible. It's the action and the reaction. Time with God and others abiding in the vine bears fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I've been going on a long time, and I apologize. Let me, let me close this out. Hopefully I can do this quick. With this very, very last truth of the utmost importance. As I mentioned it earlier at the beginning, how important love is and how you can see it all the way through this passage. Right? But did you hear just, just a minute ago and what I just read to you in Romans and in Galatians? Do you see what came first? Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And the very first fruit, love. And that the very first, in the very first verse of this passage that we're going through, do you see who the believers or what the believers are concerned about? You don't see that they're concerned about their affliction or the tribulation to come. What they're concerned is, is the brothers and sisters that they have lost, the ones that have fallen asleep. They're not looking inward. They're looking outward. What love. They're going through affliction. We read through that. They're afflicted. And yet in, within that affliction, they're looking upward and moving that love horizontally. It's just absolutely amazing. And in Matthew 22, we know this, right? You shall love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. Love is, as Trevor last week put it so well, the thing that you must have if you are in Christ. It is the reaction from the action. God's love, God loves us, and through that love, gifts us faith. With that faith, we are able to love through Jesus we will be shown what it is to truly love. He will redeem us. He will transform us. He has assured us we will always be with him. His love is unconditional for his own. What an amazing truth. True love. If the blood of Christ has washed you, if you believe that he has justified you and that you now stand stand righteous in front of a holy God, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done, And which, let's be honest, I know that that's really hard to do sometimes because we don't always look good. We don't always look pure. We do not always look Christ-like. We mess up. But he is not coming back to point out our flaws. He is not descending from heaven to look at that believer and sit there and say, let me point out everywhere you messed up. If the blood of Christ has washed you, if you sit, if you kneel in the shadow of the Christ, he is coming back to complete what he has started. Jesus' love is unconditional for those who are in him. If you know that, you are truly blessed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think when I'm getting ready to go into the boss's office, I feel like I'm going to be yelled at or something like that. Or maybe it's going to be a really bad moment. This is not one of those moments. This is going to be a joy-filled, amazing moment where we're going to be standing in front of Jesus and I imagine just a huge smile. That is comfort. That is hope like none other. That is an agape kind of love. If you don't know, if you don't know that love, if if, 
If you don't have Christ in your life, if you don't know that he died and that he resurrected, I urge you today, if you're there, if it's one of you today, I urge that you just pray now. Pray that the Spirit will move you. Ask that the Holy Spirit do a work in you today. I know that there's some idea that maybe you have to have some sort of specific wording. No, repent. Repent and pray. Work in me. I'm a broken man or woman. Let the Holy Spirit do that work. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to any one of these men that are here. There's Rick and John and Brian and Bob. There's, there's so many men here that can help you. Neil, Josh, come, come talk to somebody. Let God breathe life into you. What love God has for us. We could not even begin to reach him to the heights of his glory. So he lowered himself to us. He suffered and died. He was raised. He ascended. And he has sat at the right hand of the Father as our intercessor, our king, the perfecter of our faith, the deliverer, the good shepherd, our redeemer, our rock, risen Lord, our peace, our comfort, our hope, our savior. We will always be with him. That is comfort. That is hope like none other that's available in this world. That is agape. That is real love. My friends, I am comforted not just by that, but I am comforted and I am hopeful. I am encouraged by each and every one of you. I really am. Not just because of my faith, but because I see a church that loves. And I don't mean a church like a church, but I mean Maricopa Springs. I've seen you guys work inside of each other's lives and genuinely care about each other. I've seen brothers grow in Christ and in love, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge and walk in step with God. And I am so hopeful and encouraged by that. I can't thank you enough for all of that. Let me close this out in prayer. Father, thank you again so much for your word this morning. I thank you for your church. I thank you for their love. I thank you for your love, Father Agape. I pray for Maricopa Springs and I pray for the believers that they will be encouraged, that they will continue um, growing in knowledge and in their minds and in their hearts. Father, I pray that your word will do miraculous works in the hearts of these believers here. I pray that we can just continue to walk in a manner that is worthy of you, Father, until that day that you do descend from heaven. We thank you and we praise you. And it is in your son's name. Amen.